out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the director, Brian Vincent, and producer... Heather Spore, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about a film that they have just made, or made in the last five plus years. The film is titled Make Me Famous, and this is centred around the artist Edward Brzezinski, who was in New York during the 70s and 80s. Um, It's a documentary film with lots of interviews with artists from that period. It's a fantastic movie. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that really was the reason for making such a film on an artist that very few people have heard of and how this all came about. Anyway, Brian, it's over to you. I could relate to Edward. So could Heather. Um, Heather was in Wicked for many years on Broadway. And I'm an actor as well, a striving actor. And sometimes I'm in between work. Sometimes I like to create work. Uh, and uh, and I was sort of on that kick uh, thinking, boy, I sure do love that 1980s art scene. Like, And I was reading every book that I could get a hold of because it was such a fascinating era. And I happened to be at work one day. I was a waiter. And one of the other uh, waiters, uh, who's also an actor who had moved to New York uh, in the 80s, he said, well, he heard that I was fascinated with the 80s. And he said, hey, I collected an artist all through the 80s. You should come over to my apartment and look at it. Look at this incredible work. And so I did. And when I, it, he lives in a railroad apartment in Hell's Kitchen, and it's incredible how he's got all of the Brzezinski paintings covering every surface of his apartment. And so I just fell in love with the work. And I just thought, how could somebody this good not be famous? And that's when I Heather Heather and I talked about it. She came and looked at the work too. And then we began an investigation. Uh, and we just took people from the, all the books I was reading. We went to all their shows and we just kept investigating until this is the result. Yes. So you hadn't sort of up to that point, you hadn't sort of found him or seen him before this was kind of a quite a new person in your life yeah edward rosinski's work is what spoke uh, to me but then when i looked him up on the internet there were a few interesting tidbits like he was collected in brooklyn museum permanently i thought that was nice and then i saw also that there was a really interesting story about edward acting up at a very important gallery in the late 80s and I was fascinated by what he had done there. Yes, and this is the this is the donut. Yes, the uh, it, the eternal donut that has followed Edward's uh, career around since. And what amazed me about uh, Edward and his run in with the donut and Robert Gober um, was that it was once I st- studied Brzezinski a lot, it it seemed more and more to be a part of his art. Yes. And then, so, so look, we all have these great ideas that late at night when we've you know probably had too much to drink and then you wake up the next day and go, oh my God, I hope no one remembers what I just said that we were, we were going to do. So did you have a similar idea to thinking, okay, I'm an actor, you know, having to hustle on the, you know, part-time when I'm, when I'm not acting, I'm going to make a film, but had you made any film before this? 
I had made a short documentary years ago, which I never did anything with. And that was all about the um, Wesley Clark running for president. And that sort of ended up turning into a comedy. And I had really enjoyed making that. Uh, so I had told my friend who owns a TV studio here in New York, you know, in between my acting jobs, I sure would love to become a filmmaker. And he said, well, if you want to be a filmmaker, you should come work for me. And and I did. And he hired me to make web shows and it taught and he hired me to make sort of boring corporate videos. But I learned how to work with crews of people. I learned how to edit and I learned the fundamentals of how to make something from beginning to end. Brian also went to Juilliard. So, and Juilliard is the cream of the crop, top acting school in New York, in America, probably. And they teach you how to tell a story, break it down. Right. Because I was, I was kind of curious when you started it, and because I, I, I'm sort of quite obsessed about doing these interviews with, with mostly people from the 80s on the music front, but it's kind of, uh, you know, in other directions as well including dear old Duncan, um, who I sort of interviewed nearly two years ago, which was an amazing person. And then at the weekend, it was Penny Arcade, who was another one of these New York artists. Well, you know, she ended up in New York. So it's it's kind of interesting. But, you know, when, when you sort of started with it, just doing one interview is one thing, but how did you sort of think about how the film was going to fit together and how you were going to construct this story of of Edward? As the as time went on and we kept finding more and more about Edward and un, unraveling mysteries about him, and then this incredible archival video turned up, uh, and there were so many stories that it really was overwhelming. Um, it, it took years of research uh, to find out all the things we did, but I knew that the main um, thing that would wrap everything up was going to be when we went to the Cote d'Azur to find out what happened to Edward at the end of his life. So basically we researched and up and until we just couldn't stand it anymore. And, and we realized that the obituary tells all the most important stories of Edward's life. It's written by Walter Robinson, who's also an artist, but then because we searched for Edward in the Cote d'Azur and there's a question of, of whether or not he had actually really died, we, we go with the obituary to tell the entire story and then we question the possibility, the validity of the obit itself. And that was a structure I thought that would work. Yes. And did you, I mean, was it one of those things that when you mentioned Edward to all these people you interviewed, did they all... Did they all smile and say, yeah, I'll give you an interview? Or were they a little bit like, oh, I'm not quite sure about this. There's there's issues here. I mean, how did there, that how did that work? Or because you, you've got some amazing yeah. people on this, haven't you? Yes, we do. And by the way, you mentioned Duncan Hannah, and we absolutely adored him. And he was so helpful right up at the beginning. Um, and Duncan and and others as well, Marcus Leatherdale, uh, who's also passed away. The thing is that. For years, people uh, from the 1980s have been accosted by journalists of every kind, asking questions about Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, uh, <laughs> Richard Hamilton, David Warnerovich, the, the stars of the 80s. And so when I asked about Edward Brzezinski, I think you could have picked him up with a, you know, knocked him over with a feather. And they just couldn't believe that someone would be interested in someone that they hadn't thought about in so many years that it disarmed them. 
Right. And they just thought, wow, that's an interesting way to go about it. And I said, well, I want to tell the story of the 1980s through the lens of a striving artist. And I'd say pretty much everybody got on board quick because they thought that was such an interesting choice. Uh, however, there were others like Richard Hambleton, the, he's the godfather of street art. Uh, he had said, well, no one was interested in Edward when he was alive or, you know, when his career was going. So why would, would anyone be interested now? And he was very worried. Uh, but um, so other people, um, you know, as you'll see in, in the movie, uh, they don't they don't necessarily love Edward or they don't love his work. And I, we just thought, what a great opportunity to bring a three-dimensional story no one's ever heard of before. Yes, well, I think that makes it even more interesting because everybody... They're kind of curious, aren't they? They, they, you know, there was, I don't know, from memory, I only watched it last night, but there wasn't that many people who really worshipped him. You know, there was all these stories of being, you know, painted by him and then having the work kind of ripped and thinking, oh, that's great, that's a waste of time. And, you know, were quite critical, even of his artwork, weren't they? You know, there was a lot of, you know, they were curious about the the kind of making of this film. Did Was that quite an interesting relationship you had with them, you know, during that period? Because obviously some of them didn't even seem to rate him as a painter that much, as a figurative artist. Well, to some degree, a lot of the artists and photographers that we went out to to, to get archival materials from and to, to get interviews from, they really recognized this kind of DIY aspect that Brian and I were bringing to the project. We had never made a documentary before and we we're doing it together as a couple and just, you know, going through all the things that you think you're supposed to do. And that is exactly what they were doing in the eighties. They were, they didn't know how to be gallerists. They didn't know how they, they were talented in their own right, but they had never done that before. And so instead of, you know, feeling like they had imposter syndrome. They just went out there, balls to the wall, and did it just yeah. in this really punk kind of style. And and so I think to some degree they really recognize that in our efforts and generally were very favorable in kind of going through their archives and and trusting us with their stories. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really fascinating uh, that, you know, also in, in as far as as London goes, um, for instance, we have Marguerite Van Cook, who is, is is from England, and she was touring with The Clash and uh, and and she ended up in New York City. And, it, and I guess one of her managers ended up running off with all the money. So she stayed there to do a gallery. Uh, but the the punk scene in uh, England really inspired uh, a lot of these people, as I'm sure you know, and the and all of these um, people too. They would mix together with the musicians, and um, the painters and the actors, like Edward Eric Bogosian, who's in the in the movie, and everybody would perform for each other. And yes. so they loved that, and the the whole idea was who could be the most creative. And I think that is what makes everybody the most excited about um, that time period. They don't really understand why, uh, to some degree, 
uh, that there was this huge impetus to get great art out. But I think it also was sadly had to do with the fact that AIDS was out there and every artwork could be your last. Yes, that's and it's interesting because actually seeing Eric again um, was lovely because I remember he was in one of my favorite films in the I think it was the 80s talk radio. And I thought, Brilliant. you know, I had to pause the film and quickly go, oh, look at Wikipedia. What's he done? He's done loads. And I, I sort of thought that's strange. I only seen him in that one film and he was so intense. But you mentioned punk, which is really interesting because because with New York. During the 70s, I mean, I know it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but hey, we love them. Um, you know, there was the birth of, you know, punk, disco and also rap music. But the other thing about New York was that um, it was kind of almost abandoned in the 70s, wasn't it? It was like so people forget how dirt cheap it was and how horrendously grim it was at the same time. And what I also noticed, another sweeping statement, was that the the punk scene in America was quite different to the UK punk scene in the sense that there was that that there was that kind of creative artists that, you know, the Warhol gang, and then you had CBGB's Max's Kansas City, then you had the Mud Club, and you had those kind of characters that brought in a much more there was an artistic scene and there was also this kind of the gay scene as well, because because you had, you know, people like, was it Lee Black Childers and and sort of Robert Maplethorpe and, and characters like this who, and also the, the music kind of, there was that no, no wave scene, wasn't there, where you had the sort of music, it wasn't just kind of pub rock with, you know, punky looking blokes. It was kind of a lot more, you know, like women, gay musicians playing I'm not sure, you know, um, you know, so the sound was quite different. So there, there was a kind of um, that that comes out in the film as well, which I find kind of fascinating, the kind of the poverty of that period, but also the fact that everyone had that level of desperation, which I suppose was the heroin drug period. And then you had AIDS. So there was a kind of everyone was living quite to the to the it might we not we might not be here tomorrow kind of vibe. Yes, they were punk rock and uh, Edward would happily say that he was a punk classical painter uh, you know that um they they were all uh in a very dangerous place you know I mean New York City you could get killed there was no video cameras uh, there were all kinds of things happening at all times that could be the end of your life and so you know they they were also all getting together and and it was a very social in comparison to anything that we all experience now uh, that that it was in every night all the time all night everywhere you could go but it was very inexpensive to live there so yes. inevitably all these kind of rejects from all corners of the world artistic rejects came to the lower east side and you know banded together and and from what i've been told is it was very small community it was they found each other and um you know they supported each other in in different various ways you do a gallery okay i'll give you two pieces for your show you're going to give me two pieces for my show and and that urgency that was reflective of the aids crisis um really was it came out in the art you know, I mean, this was like some some of the art was it's just it was just raw. It just was reflective of what they were going through as a group with all their friends dying. Yes, I would. I could imagine. Yes. And, and you know, the fact that it was so cheap and I suppose it was. Um, yes, I suppose you, you could just 
live there. I mean, as, 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 as filmmakers that you've become now, how was it to sort of finance such a project? I mean, how did you sort of get to hustle that side of it to get a piece of work that wasn't just going to be a nice kind of college project that you just kind of left on the shelf, but actually to come out into the cinemas? Having worked uh, behind the scenes making things for quite a while, I had developed a lot of relationships with with some important people that could help make the movie look like it is, uh, you know, a million dollars. And we did that partly by um, we would save up and then we would shoot and then we would save up and then we would shoot again and then we would save up. And so we probably shot 50 times and, um, you know, then we traveled all over the world, wherever Edward went. And we did win a few grants here in New York, um, but uh, it was self-financed. It's an independent film. Right. Yeah, well, at the time, I was working on Broadway in Wicked. And for an actor, a long-running Broadway show is like the holy grail. Yes. Because you're you're making a livable wage. Um, it's the top tier of the Actors Equity Association. And I had been there for a very long time. So... We kind of just decided, you know what, it's time to invest in ourselves, invest in our own art. You know, as actors, we're kind of at the behest of someone else's script, someone else is going, you know, the cast director is going to call you, you're going to be a part of this project. And this was a rare opportunity to be able to um, kind of just do our own art. And Brian's been interested in doing his own art for a very long time. And I I kind of just came along for the ride. Yes, well, that's, that's amazing because I, I know, you know, with New York in that, say, you know, my very limited experience, never being there and being from the UK. But I know I did an interview with a, a producer called Martin BC, who's got a studio in New York. And again, you know, that, you know, there was a film about the, the sort of BC studio, which kind of there was a Brian Eno connection because I think he was part of the setting up. So it's great that you, I just love the fact that there are people like yourselves who are able to sort of just get that enthusiasm for the most tiny kind of thing and just make a film and document it because otherwise the narrative of our lives are dictated by the kind of the people who tell those stories but if that's just like one narrative you get the idea that's the 80s or that's the 70s and it could be like you know yuppies in the in the UK and you know Thatcher's Britain whereas actually there's this whole underground scene and obviously you would find that with New York there's there's one narrative and it's Reagan and everyone's you know rich and famous and you know is it Dallas and Dynasty and then there's this other side which is the artistic side so you must feel really happy and satisfied as artists producing such a film to deck documents somebody that would get completely forgotten if you hadn't made made that and made, managed to get all those interviews. It's true. You know, the film world is, is kind of, uh, they have their own gatekeepers for the content that gets produced sometimes. And this was a real independent film. So if you buy a ticket to make me famous, you're going to support real independent filmmaking. We did not have a you know, a team behind us. The team is Brian, Vincent, and Heather Spore. And, you know, we hired people along the way and we have, you know, great uh, partners that kind of jumped in when we needed them. But truly, you know, we're not backed by a big distributor and we're doing this on our own. And I feel like some of the art house cinemas are 
are um they're really pushing us out you know we 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 premiered at hot docs cinema and we're so thankful for bertha doc house um, to curate us to go out on a limb and choose an independent film and then also we've been curated at the institute of contemporary arts um, next week as well and these are institutions that you should support because they're supporting real indie you know uh artists and and so we just hope that your listeners will come out and support these theaters because without them we wouldn't have these opportunities and and it is exciting it is very exciting so when just briefly then so we had the you know the dreaded lockdown did you manage to get everything filmed before that happened or did you so that was all in the can your trip to berlin your trip down to the south of france was all there before 20 the dreaded 2020 march of if there's a silver lining for for the movie it had to do with the fact that we maybe got a little extra time from the post house that we went to because no one else was able to uh, they were just adjusting how do we work in under these circumstances so since we were in the middle of it when the curtain fell on new york in march of 2020 we were able to communicate with the people that were helping with the sound and all any other aspect of our movie and to just keep going back and back with more and more notes. And that's why the film, I think, uh, has reached this um, quality level that it has. Right. So that's that's good. So hopefully people will be able to sort of go to the cinemas. Will it come out as a potential streaming or DVD one day as well? We're looking forward to to reaching the streaming uh, aspect of our time, but we we want to uh, be in as many theaters as we can before that. Yes. Uh, go ahead. The thing about our film is it's a story about artists that is told from the art of the era. So these images, we have over 600 images of art and photography. We have never before seen archival footage. and and it's dazzling on the screen. I mean, I know that you guys over in the UK are having, um, you know, a strike coming up. Uh, maybe it's this weekend of the uh, cultural workers uh, for museums. And um, this is like going to a museum in in a piece. You really are able to be immersed in that era, but not only from like you know, the, the locale of New York City, but also the artwork that was being created. And so Brian has done just an incredible job editing this piece to weave the archival in with the art to tell the story in a very, it's a, it's a film that you, you have to think to, to enjoy. And it, it is really enjoyable and, and fun. Yes. It's, it's, no, I loved it. And I have to say, you know, I was making so many little notes and there were so many, you know, there was a few people that I'd heard before and, you know, went, oh, yes, I remember that person, etc. And there was loads, I'd say 80% I'd never heard of before, I'll be honest. And then sort of had to make notes and go and look at them up, look them up and look at their website or sort of realize they'd passed away. And But it was just like, I just love the fact that you've kind of opened my, you know, eyes up to something. You know, I know one part of the story of that period and that 
that time. But there's all these other characters that I've never heard of before. And it's like, oh, fantastic. I just love that. So it's great that you've managed to sort of create that kind of um, ability. Yeah, just to, to, you know, it's like being another gatekeeper, isn't it? And sort of shining the light on another world of people that we had not come across before from the underground. But again, like you were saying, Heather, it's like you've got all that film that we've never seen before of 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 these kind of crazy characters at crazy parties and and amazing stories and and juxtaposed with all the the interviews that you've done in the last five years which are just absolutely genius because they all come over so well don't they you must have really enjoyed making that film we have made lifelong friends with this group and uh and you know i just we've as some as some of them have passed away we've realized the importance of what we've been doing uh yes. but we at the time when you're making it uh, you know heather and i were just trying to complete our movie <laughs> you know uh, but the um wonderful incredible artists they're still performing for each other they're still making art and they're in these galleries and they're out there doing what they always did and that inspired us too i liken it to uh if you're at a dinner party and you got stuck next to someone you'd want to be stuck next to any one of these people in our film because they have they're punk i mean they have these stories that you wouldn't believe i mean how a lot of the stuff we couldn't even put in. There were just so many uh, just wonderful stories about, you know, living in the era and meeting people and who their friends were with. And, and they were, they really were a collective. And, and honestly, as an artist, I'm a musical theater artist. Um, you know, it's, it's just so inspiring to, to know of an era where everyone supported each other in America. That is not, the norm. And yes. I think it's wonderful to, to, to know about this era that they really were supporting each other. It is beautiful. I know Duncan, it was amazing. He said, if you, if you, when you're in New York, you know, give me a bell and we'll go for a meal. It's like, oh my God, that's so amazing. And then, you know, I heard the story. It's just like heartbreaking, isn't it? So, yeah. But when you went to, and you play, you've, uh, you're shown the film and, and they've, you know, probably most of the people have seen it. Have you had good feedback from them? Did they, you know, did most of the people just were boggled by it? On the night that we premiered in New York, it, we sold out a 480-seat theater, and, and it was in the middle of COVID, uh, in between one variant and the other. Uh, so we were shocked to sell out the entire – this was at New Fest, uh, the LGBTQ festival, God bless them forever. They 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 shot us out like a cannon. Uh, but that night, uh, it was – very, very special. And the art world came out. Anina Nose uh, was there and everybody got photographs. Duncan, uh, Hannah and uh, James Romberger, Marguerite Van Cook. I could go on and on. Um, and afterwards, I, I mean, Heather and I couldn't get three or four feet and everyone was, you know, to get out of the theater because everyone was so excited and so happy that we had been so honest. And so Heather says, you know, they were supporting each other. But I think also... Supporting each other doesn't necessarily mean all groovy and all this stuff. Like they were very honest in this movie about each other. And they they just loved that we we put that in there. Yes, it's it's great. I loved um who's it? David. David um McDermott, yes. Yes. He was just genius, wasn't he? He must have had a lot of stories that you didn't put in the film, actually, wasn't he? 
So many. In fact, <laughs> I went to Ireland and we stayed with him for nearly a week when we were filming. And the stories we could tell you. Brian saw his first ghost in <laughs> Ireland. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. David was living in, he, you know, David is someone who, uh, his art has to do with time and, and it, different aspects of what time really means. Um, now, he's living in, a, in Ireland, he was living in a, in a place that was from the 1700s, and he was distressing this big mansion uh, to uh, make it um, like it was in the 1700s. Right. And so we'd stay up all night, every night, talking about, you know, the, the wildest different things. I mean, he's just a fascinating person. Uh, but yeah, I, I I saw a ghost in Ireland, but that's a whole other story. That's a God, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much for t- giving me the time for this. And you're going to be flying tomorrow to the UK. Yes, we're going to be premiering in the UK at the Bertha Dock House on February 17th. And then we have our first performance uh, in the Institute of Contemporary Arts on the 18th. But we have about 11 uh, 11 screenings at the Bertha Dock House. And so there are ample opportunities for people to come out and take a look at Make Me Famous. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much. I'll put this up straight away. And then, you know, and I'll, and I'll send you a copy if you want. And then you can always retweet it and stuff like that and that'll be fantastic but look thank you ever so much for giving me the time and the spontaneity of this and uh, and also just so brilliant that you've interviewed all these amazing characters when you have because you know what I mean it's it's you've got to do it haven't you it's so brilliant well look all the best for your UK and your adventures because you've obviously sort of found something quite special here haven't you thank, thank you, you so David much. we're so happy to have been on yeah well look take care and uh yeah, God bless. Take care. Thank See you later. Bye bye. See you soon. Bye. And bye, that, David. Oh, and that is how you end an interview. Anyway, a massive thank you to both the director and producer, that is Brian Vincent and also Heather Spore, talking about Make Me Famous, a film that is coming to art house cinemas near you very soon. So do check that out. Talking about the uh, painter Edward Brzezinski. Um, This has been, as I said, C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.